invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is your first Sunday at the chapel this season, and you're saying, why are we in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? It's because we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 last week. I've been preaching through 2 Corinthians. If you'd like to catch up, you can do that by uh, either going on iTunes or checking out our website and uh, listening to the previous sermons or the ones that you've missed. But uh, this one really has to do with just a concerned heart of a pastor. And it's from the Apostle Paul. We had a uh, local pastor speak to our students, our, our summer staff, this week on Tuesday. We do a Bible study together, and this year we've been focusing on leadership. And so I had a local pastor come in, and he shared some statistics uh, from a book called Replenish by Lance Witt. And I just want to share a few of the statistics with you about ministers. 1,500 pastors leave the ministry permanently every month. 80% of pastors and 85% of their spouses feel discouraged in their roles. 70% of pastors do not have a close friend, confidant, or mentor. Over 50% of pastors are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way of making a living. 71% of pastors stated that they were burned out and they battled depression beyond fatigue on a weekly and even daily basis. One out of every ten ministers will actually retire as a minister. I remember in seminary a hundred years ago, a long time ago, we had a speaker that came and he said, look at the guy on the left of you and the guy on the right of you, and within a few years there will only be one of you still in the ministry. And you know, I heard that and I thought, no, I know these guys. <laughs> but I found that that is true. I've shared this before, but it's the truth. I had a, had a pastor friend of mine or a youth pastor in Gastonia when I was there, and he, he honestly made this statement. He meant it with all his heart. He said, you know, the ministry wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for people. And when you as a minister get to that point, you've kind of missed the point because people are the point, right? It's all about Jesus, but it's about telling people about Jesus. You take people out of the ministry, and uh, you don't really have a ministry left because that's who you're focused on, telling them, about Jesus. So why do I share that? Well, as, as the pastor of the chapel, I have the privilege of speaking every week to a majority of folks who aren't here last week and won't be here next week. You'll be at your home church or you were at your home church last week. So I want to share something on behalf of pastors and ministers in your church, not just a senior pastor, but other people that are in ministry around you, maybe in the local church or even in a parachurch ministry. I really think the motivating factor of the vast majority of ministers is they genuinely love Jesus with all their heart, and they love people. In fact, they're burdened about the state of the spiritual condition of the people they see around them. And so that is Paul. As Paul begins chapter 11, I believe that's where his heart is. Now, I want to do a disclaimer up front so that I don't have to keep saying this the rest of the message. Yes, there are some rogue ministers out there. In fact, I want to identify some of them or help you to identify the difference between genuine and rogue. Okay? So, yeah, there are some ministers out there that aren't in it for the right reason. Whatever their reason is, it's not because they love Jesus with all their heart and they love people and want them to know about Jesus. It may be selfish. It may be they're in it for themselves, believe it or not. But that is such a small minority. I just want to tell you, that's not who I'm talking about this morning. The, the people that I'm talking about are people who've given their lives to serve Christ in ministry. And so we look specifically at the Apostle Paul, and I just want to read the verses. We're going to look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, 
and then 19 through 21. So let me read that passage. I don't normally read passages quite this long. I normally break it up if I'm going to have a passage that long. But I want to get you the context. Here's Paul. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed, you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray for the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you've not received, or a different gospel, which you've not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And then verse 19, For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. I don't know if you caught it just in the reading of that passage, but Paul is being somewhat sarcastic in his comments. Who is he addressing? He's addressing a small but powerful faction within the church that he's called false teachers or false apostles. And they have infiltrated the church for this reason. Paul started the church in Corinth. He was there for 18 or so months. The people knew him. They saw his dedication among them. And then he left. And as he left, some other people came in and thought, this is a rich church. Corinth was an extremely wealthy community. It was also an extremely perverse community community and so some of the people who were wolves in sheep's clothing came into the church and said hey we'll pick up from where paul left off and the way they elevated themselves was by denigrating paul they, they called him you know he can't talk very well he's uh his gospel that what he's sharing with you must not be very important because he's not taking any money for it back in those days orators were prized among the greek culture and so if you had somebody that gave this great oration, this great speech, you're expected to contribute. It's kind of like today, I guess, if you see a guy playing a guitar with his case open, you're supposed to throw money in it. Back then it was for preachers or for speakers, orators. And so Paul just outlines in this passage a little bit of sarcasm. Follow along and you see it. If you see, first of all, Paul's heart for the people, he said, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. In fact, you're going to catch this word, bear with, a good bit. Here's what the word means. It literally means press up against. In other words, help hold me up. Bear with me. Put up with me in a little foolishness. Here's the foolishness Paul's talking about. Paul did not like tooting his own horn. Paul was humble 
among people, even though he was also powerful in speech, Paul didn't like having to defend his ministry. And yet that's exactly what he's having to do here for this reason. Paul's not there with them yet. He's on his way. He's been there with them before. He's on his way back. But Paul's having to say, here's why I did what I did. Here's who I am. You should know me. I've been with you for a year and a half. He's having to defend himself, and he's calling it foolishness. And here's, here's his point. He said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. These were like Paul's children. If you're a parent here, you think about you have raised your children what would you think if somebody came in while you weren't there and told them everything you've been teaching them is wrong? It is a lie, and you're, they're going to teach them something different. That's how Paul felt. Paul looked at the church at Corinth as his own children. In fact, they really were. In a spiritual sense, they were his spiritual children. He had brought them into the kingdom. He had, and is about to say, he had betrothed them to one husband, to a Savior, and that is Jesus Christ the Lord. And yet people were coming in behind trying to divert their attention. And so Paul said, I'm jealous for you. In fact, he compares it to godly jealousy, which is really the only kind of jealousy that is lauded in the Bible. In the New Testament, it says love is not jealous because it seeks its own. No, this isn't about Paul seeking his own. This is about Paul being concerned for the hearts and lives of people who are being turned away from Christ. In fact, if the word jealousy throws you, think about Exodus chapter 20. Verse 5, the first part of it says, part of the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall, worship, you shall not worship them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Later on in Exodus, it tells us that one of God's name is jealousy. Exodus thirty four fourteen says, for you shall not worship any other gods. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. What does God say? You shall have no other gods before me. Literally before my face, there's one God and I'm it, is what God's saying. So when Paul says, I'm jealous with this godly jealousy, here's why he's jealous. He said, I betrothed you to one husband. The word betrothed is not a word we hear a lot in our culture, but it's similar to our engagement. Here's how in that culture, especially in Jewish culture, betrothal or engagement occurs. A man would go over to his espoused house. And meet with her father. And they would form this marriage contract, this covenant. Here's what I'm going to do, the man would say, and here's what the father's going to do. And then he would go away. And it's really cool to get a sense of us being betrothed as the church. We are the bride of Christ, so we're betrothed to Christ. We're in that engagement period still. In the Jewish culture, the betrothal took about a year. And they didn't really see each other a lot in that one-year period because what was the man doing? He had gone away to prepare their house. In fact, in those days, this may scare you teenagers, but in those days you typically just added a room onto the family house. And so he's preparing a place for them to live, and he's going to come back. They're going to have this marriage ceremony. In fact, one of the parables that Jesus tells is the bride was not exactly sure when he was coming back. And the, re the way he knew that it was time to go back is his father, who was overseeing the building of the house, would say, son, the house is ready. Go get your bride. That's exactly what's going on right now for the church. What did Jesus say? I go away to prepare a place for you. But I'm coming back. Now, he's preparing this place for us. And who's overseeing the work of the place? The father. And one day the father is going to say to the son, Son, go claim your bride. It's time for the wedding. 
and Jesus will return. And it's amazing that in Jewish culture that took about a year. How long has it been since Jesus has been gone? About 2,000. We're closing in on about 2,000 years he's been preparing our home. I can't wait to see what heaven's going to be like. How long did it take God to create all of this? He did it in six days. This is a trash heap compared to what our heavenly home is going to be like. If you're a child of God, you've been betrothed to Christ. And so Paul says, I'm jealous for you because you only have one husband, and it's Christ, so that I may present you as a pure virgin. And just another clarification of Paul's heart, I've already read in verse 11. Paul says, why do I do this? In fact, what he's really been talking about, we're going to get to in a minute, is why is it that I came and labored among you for no pay? It's not because I don't love you. It's because I do love you. In fact, he called on God as his witness. God knows that everything I've done among you has been motivated by genuine love for you. So that's Paul's heart. Let's look at Paul's concern for the people, verses 2 through 4 and then 19 through 21. Paul had a fear. As Paul was away from them, Paul thought, here are these young Christians. They hadn't been Christians for long, maybe months, maybe years. But they literally were baby Christians in the same way that a parent feeds a newborn and takes care of their diapers and every need that they have. A spiritual mentor feels the same way about people they've led to Christ. So Paul spent 18 months with them to help establish the church and help get them growing. But he's writing back to them and saying, I'm scared. I'm a little concerned. I'm afraid for you because I know what's happened in my absence. In fact, he said, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Paul said, that's exactly what's happening here. Really, Satan's Satan's methods haven't changed that much. I want to read a passage from Genesis where we see Satan tempt Eve. But I want you to catch this. Really, three things in the passage. First thing Satan likes to do is get you to question God. He plants a seed of doubt. Then he tells you a lie, open denial. And then he tries to bring in new truth. If he can get you thinking that maybe what you believe about God's not true, he's already planted the seed of doubt, then he'll finally get you to say, yeah, that's, that's not true. And then he'll usher in new truth. He did, it with, he did it with Jesus. When Satan tempted Jesus, he said, you know, God has said man should not live, or excuse me, Jesus said man should not live by bread alone. Satan said, aren't you hungry? Well, prove your God by turning those stones into bread. Could Jesus have done that? Yeah. I've been to that part of the Holy Land where they think the temptation occurred and there's rocks everywhere and some of them look like loaves of bread. And if you hadn't eaten in 40 days, they might start looking kind of good. And so Satan said, why don't you just turn one of those stones into bread? And Jesus said, it's written that man should not live by bread alone. He quoted scripture. So the way to overcome Satan when he starts telling you these lies is you quote scripture and just say, no, that's not the truth. So as Satan deceived Eve, by his craftiness, look at the passage in Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So what's he doing? He's trying to plant doubt. Eve says, Well, actually he said, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat from from it or touch it or you will die. And here comes the lie. 
The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Now, Eve knew what God had said. And Satan challenged her on what she thought God had said. Because she had heard it from her husband. Who was standing right with her, by the way. When all this is going on. And then Satan says, oh, you're not going to die. So he's planted this doubt that what God said is true. And then he's ushering in new truth. In fact, actually, the second thing, he's, he's, he's telling her a lie. Now he's about to usher in the new truth. You shall not die. The reason God doesn't want you to eat of the tree, verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's what Satan did in the garden. Satan said, Eve, God's holding out on you. God's not good. He's got something that's really good, but he's not letting you have it. So he plants these seeds of doubt. Then he tells her a lie. Then he ushers in new truth. The new truth is, in the day you eat of that tree, you're going to be just like God. What did God tell her what's going to happen when she eats of the tree? You're going to die. What happens after she eats of the tree? They get kicked out of the garden. Some have said that Eve ate them out of house and home. Adam said, from now on, I wear the plants in this family. But anyway, that was a different story. So they're outside the garden, and what's going to happen? Now they are going to die. Don't believe that was part of God's original purpose for them, but God knew, God's sovereign, He knew what was going to happen. And so they're going to die. The same thing that, that Satan did with Eve in the garden, he's been doing ever since then. Question God, let's plant a seed of doubt, then tell a lie, and then try to present new truth. Eve, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. And folks, that's really the root of sin. Somebody defined sin this way. They said sin is trying to find meaning in life apart from God. And that's how he tempted Eve. Paul says, I'm concerned for you, I'm afraid for you, that your minds are going to be led astray. That you're going to get caught up in false teaching and you're going to get diverted from following Christ and your mind's going to be led astray. This is a problem in the church today, especially for believers who sit in churches that aren't reading their own Bible, that don't know the truth. When a false teacher comes along and says something, there's some really good false teachers. They're winsome in their personality. They're persuasive in their speech. And you're buying it hook, line, and sinker in some cases because you don't know the truth. If Eve hadn't known that God didn't say we couldn't eat of any tree, just this one tree, Satan would have won right on point one. But where she got deceived was, I'm going to eat this because it looks good, and this guy's telling me that I'm going to be like God. She's going to find purpose, meaning in life, apart from God. Paul says, I'm concerned that your minds are going to be led astray from the simplicity of purity of devotion. False teachers will try to shift your focus off of Jesus, and they'll use things like ritual, and religion, and any other thing but focusing on Christ. Some of the things may not be bad in and of themselves, but if they take the focus off Christ, they're bad. And Paul gets real specific. If someone comes and preaches another Jesus, it's interesting he uses the word Jesus and not the word Christ, because these people were claiming Christ, but it was just a different Jesus. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, what they would come and say is, well, he's just a way. And folks, that wasn't just happening 2,000 years ago. That's what's happening today. If you notice, most cults, most false religions of this day 
talk about Jesus. They just try to preach a different Jesus. There was one a few years ago. I don't hear a whole lot more about them. They used to hand out uh, roses in the airports and in the shopping malls. And their leader was a guy named Reverend Sun Myung Moon. They were called the Moonies. Maybe you never heard of them. They were big on college campuses when I was in college. But Reverend Moon believed that when Jesus came to earth, everything about his earthly life he agreed with except for this one thing. God never intended for him to die. That was like an oops moment. Oops, didn't see that one coming. They put him to death. And so God had to send another Savior. Guess who the Reverend Moon believed that Savior was? Himself. Well, isn't that special? Yeah, oh, yeah, I, I'm sent by God because I've got to pick up where Jesus left off. I mean, can you, but can you believe it? People bought that hook, line, and sinker. In fact, the Mormons started doing these weddings where they would line up 500 guys on one side and 500 girls on the other side, and they just marry them. It's kind of like, who's next? I don't know if guys were over there going, oh, you can go ahead of me. <laughs> of course, that threw everything off because then when the women figured out what was going on, they were like, no, 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 go ahead of me. You can have that one. But what happened? They bought this lie. There's another popular cult in our day that their tagline is this, as man now is, God once was. As God now is, you may become. They believe that Jesus is just a God, and if you do the right things, you can be a God too, just like Him. That is not the teaching of Scripture. That is false teaching. It's heresy. So how do we identify that? Well, if anybody comes along preaching anything that doesn't square with God's Word, don't buy it. Don't listen to it. It's false teaching. And it's typically somebody is teaching something that's all the fingers pointing to themselves. Most false teachers are great at attracting attention to themselves. So ask yourself the question. When I leave the preaching that I've just sat under, am I more drawn to the preacher or am I more drawn to Christ? So be careful. If you've received a different Jesus, or if you've received a different spirit than the one that you have received, listen, don't let some evil demon spirit come in other than the Holy Spirit that you've received. Don't, don't buy it. Don't receive it. Or a different gospel. Here's what's amazing. The word gospel means good news. So what Paul's saying is, if somebody's coming in and saying that news wasn't good, but I've got some good news. I got good news. I just saved a bunch of money on my car insurance. Don't trust your salvation on that. All right? The good news is that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, was killed on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin, and through faith in Him, I can have eternal life. If somebody's preaching something other than that, it is a false gospel. And it's not good news. And then he gets sarcastic in verse 19. You being so wise... In fact... I got to say this. In verse 4, he said, If someone comes and preaches another Jesus, or they give you another spirit, or they, you've received a different gospel, you bear this beautifully. That's, he's being sarcastic. He's basically saying, You put up with this stuff. You tolerate real well heresy. That's, that's not a good mark of a church. Then he gets to verse 19, where he says, You being so wise. Tolerate foolish gladly. And then he gives them five ifs. He says, if someone enslaves you, literally, these false teachers are enslaving 
you. One of the ways they would do it was the Judaizers were saying this. If you want to be a believer, you want to be a Christian, you've got to become a Jew first. And so they were being entombed. They were being enslaved to all this law that they were piling on top of the gospel. The Bible says anything you add to the cross becomes an enemy of the cross. If the cross isn't enough, if you've got to add something to it, it's heresy. It's an enemy of the cross. The simplicity of the gospel is the cross is enough. It's for by grace you're saved, not as a result of works. And Paul was saying these folks are adding work on top of grace, and it's not from God. And you're being enslaved by it. Or if you, anyone has devoured you, literally to eat you down or to prey upon, and that's what these false apostles were doing. They were preying upon the people for their own financial gain. If anyone takes advantage of you, if anyone exalts himself, in other words, he raises up himself to lord it over you, false apostles are so taken by their own importance. And number five, if anyone hits you in the face, that was the greatest mark of disrespect in that culture. It's a pretty good mark of disrespect in our culture. Paul says, again, sarcastically, to my shame, we've been weak. In other words, Paul's saying, you're handling this so well. I just got to tell you, I I wouldn't handle it that well, is what Paul's saying. I'm I'm too weak to handle it the way you are. But he's being sarcastic. Because he's saying, this ought to rile you up. When wolves are coming into the church, it ought to tick you off. You ought to stand up and do something about it. But you're just kind of letting it happen. I think he's saying to the church at Corinth, wake up! And so church in America today, as a pastor, I want to say, it's time to wake up when heresy infiltrates the church. Maybe not your church, but Christianity as a whole. We've got to be aware of it. We've got to wake up to it and say, that's not right. So that was Paul's concern for the church And then last, just briefly, his ministry among the people. Paul said, I consider myself not the least bit inferior to these super apostles. He's talking about the people that are claiming to be apostles. How did Paul become an apostle? He became an apostle on the road to Damascus. He had an encounter with Jesus and trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior, but was also called into ministry. And so he's not talking about the other apostles. He's comparing himself to them. No, he's calling himself these super apostles. Again, sarcastically, he's like, I'm not inferior to them. Okay, maybe they got me on the speech thing. They made fun of the eloquence of his speech. And apparently when Paul spoke, he didn't speak eloquently like the great orators they were used to. Paul said, maybe I don't preach that way. But I'm not inferior in knowledge. Paul knew the truth of the gospel, and that's what he shared with them. And nobody could challenge the fact that, God, that Paul knew Jesus and he knew the calling that was on his life. And he asked him, did I, did I commit a sin by humbling myself? They're, they're claiming that my gospel has no value because I'm not taking money for it. Paul said, you know what? I came to know nothing among you other than Christ and him crucified. I didn't take any money from you. In fact, Paul, we know in Corinth, was a tent maker. So that he didn't have to be a burden to the church, literally to be a weight that burdened them and held them down. He had a part-time job to take care of his needs. And when it really got desperate, there were churches from Macedonia that came and supplied 
for Paul's needs so that he wouldn't have to take anything from these people because he wanted to maintain the purity of the gospel. In fact, he said, I, I robbed from other churches. I took wages from them that should have come from you. So what's Paul saying? At the end of the day, Paul is saying, here's my heart, people. I'm having to defend myself a little, a little bit against these false teachers because I'm concerned for you. People, it's not about me. It's not about whether you remember my name at the end of the day, but don't let anybody come into the church and tell you something other than what Jesus has revealed to you. How do we apply that today? I've already alluded to it, but just to repeat. It's real important, first of all, that we appreciate those who minister among us. And secondly, it's real important that we know the Bible well enough to know when something's right or when something's wrong. And don't tolerate false teachers. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for this truth. And Lord, even reading this passage this week, I recognize the point, the place that Paul was in, in Corinth. But Lord, we're in a similar situation in 20th century America. And so God, I pray for pastors. I pray for those that are ministering among people God, their hearts are right. But some of them are beat down. They're depressed. They're struggling in ministry. Lord, would you encourage them today? And God, would you rally people around those godly ministers to support them and encourage them? And Father, when false teachers come in, would we know the Bible well enough to know the difference? Because it's all about your truth. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name.